Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his sparkling new book, Mysticism in Iran, The Safavid Roots of a Modern Concept, Atta Anzali, Assistant Professor of Religion at Middlebury College, offers a sweeping and brilliant intellectual history of the concept of Irfan in medieval, early modern, and modern contexts. Combining a mesmerizingly layered analysis of previously unexplored manuscripts with close attention to shifting social and political contexts, Anzali shows, with dazzling nuance, the processes and dynamics that informed the institutionalization of Irfan in Iran. This nimbly written book will interest much scholars of Muslim intellectual history and religious studies. In this conversation, we talked about the key themes, theoretical interventions and arguments of this book. Here now is my conversation with Professor Atta Anzali. Hello, Atta. How are you doing? Hi, Sher Ali. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, well, Atta, thank you so much for your time and for this really majestic uh, book, uh, Mysticism in Iran, which really has introduced to us a host of uh, uh, texts and actors and really combines intellectual and social history in rather masterful ways. So I think this will be a must-read book uh, for some years to come. So thank you for this book and for your time today. We have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies, Atta. As you might know, that our first question is always a biographical. Atta, could you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar of Islam and got to write this book, uh, if you could give us a sense of your journey as, uh, as a scholar. Sure. Um, I guess that uh, the way I'd like to answer that question is, uh, well, I, I, I've, I've been interested in the study of religion in different ways for a long time now. And I started my journey really uh, in this um, kind of substantial way, learning about religion um, in Iran when uh, I moved to the Qum Seminary to just study traditional Islamic disciplines. And that was a very rich and um, um, interesting experience. For five years, I basically focused mostly on rational disciplines like philosophy, speculative mysticism of Ibn Arabi, um, some usul al-fiqh. So, um, that was uh, the five years that I studied like on a traditional curriculum. But gradually, as I read more, uh, some of the translated works from English to Farsi, um, I got more interested in the study of religion from an academic perspective. So, long story short, I 
eventually decided to apply to a graduate program in the U.S. to start getting a more academic uh, exposure to the study of religion because before that it was mostly theological. And um, I came to the U.S. like 11 years ago, started a PhD program at Rice University in Houston because I was really interested in the study of mysticism and mystical experiences. Uh, and Rice had a strong program um, of, uh, it's I think it's called GEM, uh, Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism. So I studied under that program and um, eventually decided to do my dissertation specifically on uh, the mystical tradition like Sufism um, and its developments in early modern period in Iran. And that became my dissertation, uh, which is now published in the form of a book. And um, the, yeah, right after I finished my PhD, I started teaching at Middlebury and teaching about Sufism has also been a constant source of uh, inspiration and fascination for me. So that's how I would summarize it, I guess. Terrific. Uh, so this book is primarily what one might call an intellectual and social history of a concept, uh, the concept of Irfan. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, could you perhaps... Uh, uh, introduce to our listeners what is the sort of key goal and sort of argument that you pursue in this book and perhaps talk a bit also about the way in which the politics of the present uh, informs uh, um, the, the way in which you approach this category or uh, the way in which it informs the conceptual architecture of this book, broadly speaking. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you speak about the goal of this book and also how the present in some ways also hearkens uh, uh, the, the pages of this book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me start with the, how uh, the present political situation um, kind of prompted me to think about the subject of this book and then connect that to the broader goal. Um, I guess um, the way I started thinking about the central question of this book was uh, when I traveled to a couple of other Muslim countries and I realized how the way people talk about the uh, quote-unquote mystical tradition of Islam is different in Iran. Uh, people usually refer to this term Irfan um, primarily to um, refer to that tradition, whereas in other countries, Tasawwuf or Sufism is the main concept that's used. So like that dichotomy got me thinking about really what has happened, you know, especially given in contemporary Iran, the term Sufism has so much negative connotations, especially when you think about the state propaganda, Tasawwuf or Sufism is uh, like a term that's constantly stigmatized and uh, traditional institutional Sufism is very weak in Iran and it's been marginalized, but even like those marginalized groups are constantly under pressure um, because in, in, in effect, the state, you know, sees Erfan uh, after the revolution, you know, with Khomeini being this, like, uh, pre-dogmatic, you know, like, uh, with Khomeini being this, you know, like, being presented as the primary teacher of Erfan. Um, so any, any, anybody, any uh, social, cultural movement that lays claim 
on something that can be uh, considered uh, a rival to the tradition of Irfan that's represented by Khomeini is uh, highly suspicious and heavily under scrutiny and sometimes physically uh, suppressed uh, by violent means. So like that's the condition in Iran, like in terms of how traditional Sufi orders are under heavy pressure to um, uh, from from the state and how there's this um, mainstream narrative that, you know, Irfan is the authentic tradition of mysticism in Islam and Sufism is something that's kind of uh, deviant or uh, not um, authentically Shi'i or, you know, so so that, that, that kind of got me really thinking about how this dynamic of Irfan versus Tasawwuf, where did that start? Um, and like, so like the book is really about that. It's about like kind of intellectual history, social history of how that distinction came to be. But to connect this to the second um, part of your question about like what the broader goal of this book is, I think as a scholar of religion, I'm really interested how the way we construct our categories and the way just religious traditions construct categories. You know, like when we reflect on those, both like the, on what, and what I mean by that is like reflection on our categories, like the category of mysticism and also the category like that's been used traditionally in Iran, like Irfan or Sufism. These reflections help us really uh, position ourselves um, in history and think more critically about when we apply those concepts, you know, like what is implied there, uh, when we apply the concept of mysticism in different contexts, or let's say in my case, when we apply the concept of Irfan, um, what do they reveal about the power structures, about the history of these uh, different social cultural movements and how they have clashed with each other? Uh, so that's kind of the broader goal of this book. I, um, that's the way I would put it. Terrific. So much of the book, of course, you spend on the Safavid period and look at transformations in this concept, but you, of course, also spend quite a bit of time in looking at the pre-Safavid uh, understandings of this term in uh, sort of early Islam and medieval Muslim uh, thought by looking at uh, the thought and writings of scholars like Ibn Arabi and Ibn Sina, etc. So, uh, uh, Atta, could you sort of uh, uh, perhaps summarize for our listeners the key findings of your analysis in terms of the pre-Safavid understandings of Irfan in the thought of these medieval and uh, early Muslim scholars. Uh, how does Irfan come up, if ever? What did you find? What were sort of your major findings in terms of uh, the, the the place of this category uh, or its cognate, its cognate categories when we scan these uh, early and medieval uh, pre-Safavid sources? Sure. Um, so... In pre-modern times, you know, like my maybe two major findings when I read the literature. Um, first of all, I found that the category of Irfan itself is not really a central um, category. It's not a significant category that's used uh, a lot. Rather, it's like a very marginal concept. And this is not my finding, really, you know, like this is something that people, generally speaking, know. But when I think about 
the category of Irfan in pre-modern Islamic literature, um, I would like to think about this in the context of a cluster of concepts uh, that come from the root arafa. So like concepts like ma'rafa, arif. These concepts are way more popular, like Irfan in particular is not, but like when you think about the cluster of concepts and specifically about the concept of ma'rifa, this is really at the center of Sufi discourse um, from 10th century onwards. So my attempt in the first chapter of this book really was to kind of see what is the relationship between this pre-modern discourse on ma'rifa or gnosis or knowledge, whatever you want to translate that is. What is the relationship of that tradition of the use of ma'rifa to what comes later? that's called Irfan. So like the claim I make is that, you know, first of all, the category of Irfan is very marginal. It's not as significant, as central and important as it is after the Safavid times. The second is, you know, like when you think about the cluster of concepts like Ma'rifa, Arifa and stuff, these are used by people like Ibn Arabi and his circle, a, you know, in a, significant, you know, this is a significant concept in their discourse, but it's also used in, a, uh, philosophical discourse like Ibn Sina and his followers, I argue that these two trends eventually kind of come together like Irfan and Ma'rifa in pre-modern times, you know, like especially given how Sufism was really, really the predominant discourse in many corners of the Islamic uh, lands, like the philosophical um, understanding of uh, these terms gets to be subsumed uh, under what the Sufi understanding was. And eventually, like you have the term Marifa, like from a Sufi perspective, really kind of defining everybody's understanding of what the knowledge of divine is from a mystical perspective. But that is, you know, like my argument is that that pre-modern tradition, although very important, it really doesn't have a lot to do what happens with, you know, like after the Safavid time. So that kind of disjuncture is like really where I go with the rest of the book. Now, in the next chapter, you uh, comb through sources that were uh, sort of anti-Sufi uh, polemics or other kinds of writings uh, coming from various quarters, from the philosophers, from other kinds of scholars. Uh, could you share with us some of the key highlights of uh, the kinds of anti-Sufi literature that developed in the Safavid period and what uh, was driving this literature and what do we find uh, in these sources and the different quarters from which uh, they were coming? Sure. So, I guess to continue what I, you know, like the way um, I'd like to answer that question, I, I'd like to connect that to the previous question. So, what I found really was uh, what it's something unique about the Safavid period, obviously, is that we have the gradual conversion of uh, uh, Persia to a predominantly 12 or Shi'i landscape. Um, in that context, so everybody obviously is, knows that, you know, that's a known fact that Iran converted to 12 or Shi'ism during um, the Safavid period. Uh, in the two centuries. But what we don't really know is uh, how 
how that happened exactly, you know, like um, it's very simplistic to say this is just a matter of sheer force or um, just the Safavids were able to convert Iran to Sufism by using force or violence or those means. You know, that was there, but, you know, like it's a much uh, deeper kind of transformation that we have in Iran. And my argument is that when you look at the concept of Irfan and how it, it emerged, that really kind of, it's, it's a really good signifier, a really good um, lens through which we can actually see what was happening on the ground in terms of religious transformation. And the, the first place I look into to kind of map that transformation is this anti-Sufi literature. So I argue that the campaign that we had during the 17th century, especially in Safavid era, against Sufism is something really unprecedented in uh, in Muslim history. You know, like not that we didn't have a position to Sufism. Of course, there were stronger positions to Sufism in uh, like previous historical periods in different places, but. What I find in Safavid period is that you have a very well-organized well campaign by some of the emerging uh, 12-year scholars who are supported implicitly and sometimes explicitly by the Safavid court. Uh, and they go after Sufism, not just because they are opposed to that mode of piety, but this is kind of symptomatic of a deeper level of, you know, kind of transformation that's happening. That is to say, as these ulama gain ground in uh, propagating 12-er Shiism, and as people convert to Shiism during the 17th century, they find traditional organized Sufism the main rival and to their kind of to the mode of piety they're proposing the or they're trying to get people convert to so traditional sufism having these law you know like extensive social networks the sufi khanagas all the peers that people go to to kind of in order to get their um like basically um the mode of piety that invites people to go to the Sufi peer to find an intermediary to God. That mode of piety for the ulama was the main source of uh, um, rivalry. So like what they do is like they want to project this picture of Sufism that um, identifies it with uh, the Sunni heretical aspects of Islam that they are trying to distance the populace from. So the reason why this anti-Sufi campaign is so, I think, unique and interesting um, historically is that, you know, like it's really designed to marginalize a mode of piety associated with organized uh, Sufism in this case um, by connecting it to, to the Sunni mainstream, you know, like previously mainstream mode of piety saying, you know, like Sufism is connected to Sunnism. That's kind of like, and that's why we want to uh, distance ourselves from it. So like most of this anti-Sufi camp, you know, kind of literature that I uh, talk about in this chapter is really about um, how the ulama are kind of saying, well, you know, look at this 
look at you know like the Sufi lineages. You know, most of the people in these lineages are Sunni. Some of them, like Halaj and Bayezid, are you know like really from their perspective heretics you know like antinomians so that those kinds of charges are leveled you know like it's not just about like you know i'm opposed to sufism because this is you know like heretical it's like a much broader um social cultural and political engineering going on here and that's why kind of the uh it's not about one or two figures. It's about a broader transformation. And like really the emergence of the concept of Erfan and marginalization of Sufism is a way to look at that transformation and understand why why people are moving towards Erfan and why this kind of new category emerges. Terrific. Uh, and in the next chapter, uh, as a way to ask my question about the next chapter, Atta, there is this very interesting category that in some ways serves as a thread throughout all uh, the chapters of this book, which is what you call the uh, suffer with Twelver nomos, or this idea of approaching Twelver Shiism as a sacred nomos. Mm -hmm. And in the next chapter, you really show that the Sufi response to these uh, kinds of uh, anti-Sufi writings and so on uh, eventually developed a certain kind of a uh, religious and social topography that made way for the emergence of Irfan that you talk about in the coming mm -hmm. chapters. I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit what do you mean by, by this category of approaching Twelver Shiism as a sacred nomos or this Twelver Safavid nomos? And what are some key aspects of uh, how this nomos came into being? And what are some of the key features of this nomos uh, that you describe so well by looking at the texts of a, a number of different scholars? Sure. Um, I mean, this, this is the part of the book where I try to actually... Um, approach the question of really what happened in Safavid Iran in terms of, you know, like why people found Twelver Shiism a compelling mode of piety. How were the ulama and the Safavid court, like how did they succeed in this uh, massive project of uh, promoting Twelver Shiism and eventually succeeding in really converting a, the majority of population under a rule to Twelver Shiism. So the reason why I use um, the concept of nomos, I mean, I'm obviously inspired here by Peter Berger and some other sociologists of religion. Uh, and I use the work of um, Said Amir Arjamand here, who is in his own turn uh, influenced by Weber. So I guess the theoretical lens that I'm trying to apply here is, uh, well, if we really think about the transformation of Shiism here and how people got to this new mode of piety and converted to it, it really boils down to how Shiism before this period was uh, what they call a sect, something that always is defined in contradistinction to the majority piety, which is a Sunnism and, you know, like Sunnism at the time, pre-modern times was really um, heavily influenced by Sufism. So what we have in Safavid period is a transition to a new understanding of Shiism, I argue, that's when you look at it sociologically, it becomes an independent mode of piety, a world religion, so to speak. 
uh, a mode of piety that's not defined anymore in some of its major aspects against um, or like let me put it this way a mode of piety like 12 Shiism that's not um, you cannot look at it and say you know like yeah it's just another response or like an enclave culture within a sea of uh, Sunni piety. It's like it becomes its own thing. You know, it develops its own polity. It develops its, you know, people develop their own uh, religious sensibilities. It's, of course, something that develops in, you know, like you have the Ottomans and, you know, like people are seeing Sunnism as the enemy now. But my argument is that, you know, when you get to a point where Shiism has its own political structure, its own clerical hierarchy, um, its own, you know, myth and rituals that are supported by the state and the clerical elite, like the Ashura um, uh, ceremonies. And uh, when you think about the friar prayers, you know, like there is a major controversy about whether you have to do the friar prayers or they're just are they mandatory or not? You know, like these debates for me really reflect a, a, a very fascinating attempt by not just the ulama, but also by the people to create a new, um, what I would, I, I basically would say, you know, like is a new sacred canopy to just steal Peter Berger's title, you know, like a, a new mode of piety that's independent of Sunnism and it kind of grounds you, it gives meaning to you, it says, you know, like this is how you define yourself as a Shi. It's kind of before that, it's always kind of you, when you define Shiism, it's always within this broader Sunni framework. But here, what you have is an independent nomos, an independent structure of meaning, religious structure of meaning that's um, not defined within the Sunni uh, framework, but independently of that. Now, in the next chapter, you turn uh, more systematically to the concept of Irfan and how it uh, uh, is invented, as you as you as you put it, through the work of some specific scholars, primarily operating in Shiraz. And uh, could you t- tell a, a bit about uh, who were some of these scholars and how did uh, uh, Irfan, as an independent category, begin to emerge? Uh, I guess in the 17th century through the work of these scholars. Could you perhaps choose a couple? Uh, and uh, uh, tell our listeners about how this uh, category was invented or became uh, uh, visible as an independent category from the 17th century onwards through the work of these uh, scholars in the 17th century. Sure. So what I argue there is uh, so far a lot of people have focused on the category of Irfan. They have... uh, primarily paid attention or focus on a philosophical tradition represented by Mullah Sadra and his uh, disciples, his students. And um, I, the more I read the sources, the more I was uh, kind of questioning this uh, narrative that, you know, Irfan really begins with Mullah Sadra or that kind of uh, mystical philosophy tradition that he represented. Um, so, for example, what I do 
I focus on a couple of scholars like Qutbuddin Neirizi, who lived in late 17th century, early 18th century. And um, I focus, I mean, he was a, 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 a Sufi. I mean, like when, um, when I say he was a Sufi, Sufi, like the way we would understand the term, you know, like he was, he had a Sufi lineage, you know, like he claimed that lineage. Uh, but he never wanted to be associated with the term Sufi. He knew, like, at the end of the Safavid period, this term is so stigmatized that he finds it really counterproductive to, you know, like, associate himself with the term Sufi. He calls himself a faqir or an arif. So these are the terms he uses to... Um, promote his mode of piety, which is basically Sufism, you know, like when you look at his worldview, when you look at his lineage, you know, like he had a Hanukkah, all this stuff. But he looks at it and say, you know, like we are not Sufis because really, you know, he's he buys into this narrative at the end that Sufism is something, um, something that's uh, a, a negative concept. Sufism is something even for him, that's associated with heresy and Sunnism. So he kind of really starts to invade, in, invent this tradition of uh, so-called Irfan with a focus on Shi'i figures who came before him or like people, were, you know, like he projects Shi'ism on a lot of people. He picks and chooses and he makes up a tradition, basically, saying, you know, like, these were the figures who are really into the tradition of Fakr or Irfan in Shiism. And this is kind of, you know, like he tries to legitimize that tradition in a way he is salvaging the tradition of Sufism, like intellectual features of uh, or intellectual components of Sufism, while um, trying to paint the whole tradition the past in a Shi'i light, like, the, I mean, it's very similar to how Majalis al-Mu'minin tries to do that. Um, so, Qutbuddin al-Nayrizi starts doing that, you know, like, I focus on the figure of Shah Muhammad al-Darabi, I argue, even though he was not really, a, you know, affiliated with any Sufi lineage, but he was what they call a mystically-minded religious scholar. And what he's trying to do, he sees a lot of good things in Sufi literature. But again, the problem is that the term Sufism has become so stigmatized that he can't really use it productively. So he's what he does is really he rephrases or reframes the Sufi tradition. Many intellectual components are adopted, but he tries to, again, use the term Irfan rather than Tasawwuf to refer to that tradition. And what he does is really, really separates both these figures. They separate the social aspect of the Sufi tradition, you know, like the Khanagah uh, aspect, right? They separate the intellectual elements from the social element. That's one thing that they do. The second thing that they do is that they uh, really try to re- uh, imagine what the master disciple relationship looks like for them, you know, like the question of what is the role of an infallible imam in that relationship really becomes 
predominant, especially for Darabi. He says, you know, like, okay, so if we think of the Sufi Sheikh or like kind of a spiritual master as someone that you need for spiritual progress, like who is that spiritual master? So like the answer for them is really, well, it's primarily or, you know, like this imam should assume that role. But since the imam is in occultation, now like we have some figures who are not imams, but they can actually lead you uh, to the path that ends in uh, really your connection to the imam. And, you know, that's how you actually find this spiritual um, uh so, like, if you think about it as, uh, like, unity with God, uh, if that's the goal, you know, like, you'll find it through the imam, but since the imam is in occultation, there are some people who can't, you know, who are connected to the imam, who emulate the imam, and by means of emulating the imam, they are qualified to lead you to that way. So, like, Shah Muhammad Darabi, uh, Sayyid Khutbatin Nairizi, these are the figures. And then I move to the post-Safavid period with... Uh, Abdurrahim Damawandi, which is a fascinating figure, but, you know, like, uh, um, I can talk about that. We'll see, you know, like, um, if we have time for that. Sure. Perhaps I could uh, uh, combine uh, the arguments of the next two chapters in a single question and, and uh, uh, have you sort of navigate that. Um, how did this emergence of Irfan as a concept then become uh, institutionalized, which is the subject of the next chapter, how it became a part of the intellectual and social spaces of the madrasas, for example, is something that you very brilliantly show in the next chapter. And then in the chapter following that, you show how ways in which this concept travels outside of madrasa spaces in terms of other kinds of actors not uh, uh, fixed to the madrasa also begin to appropriate and use this concept in interesting ways. So could you speak a bit about both the institutionalization of this concept uh, and also then the modernization of this concept as you uh, frame it um, in, in, in these uh, next two chapters. Sure. Um, so in terms of is, it, institutionalization, I really, um, what I argue in that chapter is, well, once you have decoupled Sufism from its traditional social network, once you have domesticated Sufism in this new religious landscape of 12 Rashidism being too predominant with clerics really calling the shots. In this context, you know, like, so given the figures like Sayyid Qutbuddin Nairizi or Shah Muhammad Darabi or Abdurrahim Damawandi that I argue like they kind of helped forge the concept of Irfan. Like, so like my, I was really curious to see like, what is the social uh, play, you know, like, how does this concept translate into a social, institutional um, setting? You can't, you know, it's not just a concept, it's not an abstract concept, it's something, a social reality that's kind of that transformation, the whole conversion of Iran to Twelver Shiism is a social reality. So I was curious, where did this new concept find its institutional home? And what, I, what I argue is that, you know, like, really, a bunch of Again, what I call mystically minded religious scholars, who were Shi'i scholars, as they found, you know, like because they are, you know, they have a penchant for, uh, what, let's, for lack of a better term, mysticism or spirituality, they find this tradition 
you know, the intellectual and spiritual components of Sufi tradition very attractive. So that's channeled through the, the channel of Irfan now to them. So what happens is that you have a number of prominent religious scholars, most notably the Naraqis, uh, Mullah Muhammad and Ahmad Naraqi, Mullah Mehdi and Ahmad, both of them, the son and the father. They are, you know, like really established figures in Shi'i seminaries, you know, like in the houses. And what they do really, they, because they were mystically minded, they introduced this concept to the curriculum of the madrasas, you know, like gradually. And this is where actually the tradition of mystical philosophy of Mullah Sadra also comes into picture that, you know, like you have people who are interested in Mullah Sadra's mystical philosophy. You have people who are interested in this newly invented tradition of Irfan as well. And what happens during, you know, like the interregnum period and the early Qajar period is that these, these, different intellectual trends get to uh, find an intellectual home, an institutional home in Shi'i madrasas, and mystically minded, philosophically minded religious scholars start teaching them. And Ibn Arabi becomes also part of this through Mullah Sadra, because Mullah Sadra like, really draws heavily from Ibn Arabi and Sayyid Haider Amali. So like, these traditions become really, all of them, uh, I'm not arguing that's kind of at the center of madrasa curriculum, rather on the margins, but nevertheless, they were there. So that's kind of in terms of its institutionalization. But then when you think about the modernization, well, that's a totally different uh, and fascinating aspect of the, the development of our fund. What I argue is that, so like you have in the 19th century is this kind of uh, at the margins of madrasa, people who taught, the Erfani tradition, so to speak. And then what happens in the 20th century is as Iran goes through a period of modernization and dramatic changes, some of the new elite, the new middle-class elite who have been educated not really only in madrasas, but they've all, you know, like maybe initially they've been trained in madrasas, but they also got modern education. They start thinking about ways in which they can understand religion uh, in, in a way that's compatible with modernity, with progress, all these new kind of buzzwords that early 20th century in Iran, you know, like you have. So what they do gradually is, you know, like it's they, they look at the tradition of Irfan, they look at Sufism, Sufism is still, you know, like even for them, for these new modern-minded intellectuals of the early 20th century, Sufism is something negative. It It's associated with uh, superstition, with backwardness. I mean, this is the same as, you know, you can think about uh, uh, really Muhammad Abdo, you know, in Egypt, all of them, you know, like Sufism traditionally, uh, for them was associated with this backward way of looking at religion. So what they want to do, like they actually kind of latch on to Irfan as the concept, saying, you know, like, yeah, like Sufis are really these backward superstitious people. But really Irfan is this thing that we want. You know, Irfan for them is this, maybe you can say individualistic, democratic, uh, universal concept. That's kind of what they get, that's how they receive the concept of a phone, you know, like as this concept that helps them understand religion in more individualistic, 
experiential ways. And that makes Erfan a universal tradition for them. Erfan is not something that's kind of just confined within the borders of uh, Iranian mystics or whatever. It's a universal concept. So because they wanted to they wanted to be the cosmopolitan members of uh, this new era that Iran is entering to. So that cosmopolitanism, really in that kind of context, Erfan as a universal concept appealed to them dramatically. So they kind of adopt the concept of Erfan and they make really some important changes or kind of, you know, the concept of Erfan goes through important transformations in that period in terms of becoming uh, this signifier of individualistic, experiential sort of pie or spirituality. And that's kind of this really uh, the latest phase in the transformation of the concept of Erfan, which I kind of eventually tie it to the like most contemporary uh, 21st century developments. Uh, Atta, as a final uh, substantive question, I, I want to talk to you a bit about your epilogue in which you reflect on the question of uh, uh, the category of uh, mysticism and its appropriateness uh, to be translated as Irfan or the whole question of can one employ this category when it comes to pre-modern uh, archives. And in that epilogue, uh, you know, in addition to reflecting on the relationship between Irfan and mysticism, you also critique uh, some post-colonial theorists uh, like Richard King and Timothy Fitzgerald for what you see as them drawing too, uh, uh, too strong of a wall between the modern and the pre-modern periods in, mm -hmm. in, in arguing that these kinds of categories are completely inapplicable or uh, unamenable uh, to uh, the pre-modern period. Could you tell uh, our listeners a bit about uh, that reflection. Uh, what uh, is your uh, the point of your critique and how you wrestled with uh, this category of mysticism in relation uh, to this book? Sure. Um, that's it. That's a really. I mean, that's really one of the questions I've uh, I've been most fascinated with. You know, like and as a scholar of religion, I think we all deal with these questions of you know, like how our categories are or are not applicable. And I would say, you know, like, because I am someone who is deeply interested in the comparative study of religion, I find the approach that, um, let me call it like kind of this approach to, um, to religion or to really human culture that separates cultures from each other as uh, entities that really cannot talk to each other, we cannot really understand each other, kind of this balkanization of knowledge, uh, let's call it. Um, I find it really um, frustrating and uh, the reason why I would say that in the case of mysticism is that obviously there are problems with applying this concept to uh, the concept that emerged, let's say, you know, like in uh, 20th century, 19th century in Europe, and now like you want to apply this concept to the Islamic uh, um, context. I mean, obviously it's problematic, but then my question is, uh, uh, really, are we talking about to, to what extent does this category reveal something and to what extent does it distort? 
I can't buy the argument that all that the category of mysticism has to offer to us is distortion of the phenomenon that we are studying. I think a my preferred way of going about applying these categories to different cultural contexts is you if you're self-reflective, if you're critical about the use of the concept, there are ways in which the concept reveals and there are ways in which the concept conceals. So provided that you're self-reflective about the use of these concepts, I think we are re really using the concept like mysticism or concept of religion. If you want to use that in a cross-cultural setting, it can reveal a lot of interesting patterns of uh, or commonalities between cultures. And I think we really miss on that if we just say, you know, these categories are results of a kind of power dynamic and you know like the moment you apply it to the other culture this means that culture is going to be distorted i do find distortions but i do also find some similar patterns and kind of my argument is that if you look at the concept of irfan if irfan turned to be an individualistic universal democratic uh concept in the mind of modern-minded intellectuals in Iran in 20th century, it's not because they just translated mysticism into Irfan. They tapped into a traditional concept that was there. It was domesticated Sufism, Irfan in that sense, domesticated Sufism. It had some of those features already. So like, why do we insist on separating and thinking that the only way people can come up with a concept uh, that's individualistic, a concept of mysticism that's kind of more heavily focused on experience or heavily focused on universal experience of humankind. Why should that be always kind of a projection of Western powerful dominant cultures or concepts? Why can't we find that, you know, like actually in traditional, you know, like in all of those cultures, they had their own indigenous developments that led sometimes to concepts similar to that. And, you know, like when a modern intellectual taps into that concept, it's not just he's kind of um, given in to colonial forces or colonial invasion of, you know, like a Western alien culture. He's just tapping into what is, at, you know, like at his disposal in his own culture. And, and also responding to a to the question of modernity and religion, obviously. So that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in that epilogue. Um, and I, 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 you know, in, to just conclude my thought, it's really both a reflection on the concept of mysticism as we scholars use, and then also a reflection on the concept of Erfan as it's used in Iran. Both of them have really modern and pre-modern histories. Um, and they have similarities and differences. And I think we miss if we focus on the similarities only or on the differences only. Uh, so, uh, Atta, as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, could you perhaps share with our listeners uh, uh, what you are imagining as uh, the next uh, possible project that you... Sure. Um, I mean... I guess because I'm I'm not a historian per se. I'm a historian of religion. Uh, so you know that's a way to say I'm interested in historical questions in in so much as they can reveal something interesting about broader problems in the study of religion. So I've become really fascinated with the question of modernity and religion as it relates to 
spiritual and mystical traditions. So what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm focusing on early um, uh, 20th century uh, developments of uh, religion and spirituality in Iran. It's kind of a sort of a, a, a sequel to this book or let's I don't know if it's going to turn into a book, but or maybe a couple of articles about some prominent figures in early 20th century who transformed the understanding of our Iranian understanding of religion, kind of new mode of understanding what religion is, how do you actually uh, observe as a modern subject. So that's so I focus on some mystical. Uh, or mystically inclined intellectuals like Qasem uh, Zadeh Iran Shah uh, and some others who have been instrumental in introducing um, new ways of thinking about spirituality and religion to modern Iranian audience. And uh, that's, I hope, you know, like kind of would be probably um, two articles or maybe if I can kind of work more on that, like in the form of a book, but that's kind of what I'm, where I'm headed. Mysticism in Iran, the Safavid Roots of a Modern Concept by Atta Anzali, published by the University of South Carolina Press in 2017. Uh, thank you so, uh, so much, Atta, for your time. I should actually mention as uh, we end our conversation to our listeners that in addition to the wonderful and detailed analyses that you've done of different texts, you've also provided a, uh, a working bibliography for future scholars of this topic, uh, just a number of sort of... Uh, uh, texts from different time periods and uh, organized very carefully uh, in terms of the manuscripts and, and other uh, uh, sort of texts that fall into different uh, themes and categories. I think you've also done a great service for future scholarship on this topic. But thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful book. Uh, it was a pleasure uh, talking to you, Atta. Thank you so much, Dear Ali. It was a pleasure to talk to you as well. So this was my conversation with Professor Atta Anzali about his wonderful new book, Mysticism in Iran. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I also hope that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep tuning in to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you.